Hello and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction. My name's Philippe Naren and I'm joined as always by Fergal Armstrong. And in the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we're going to be talking about Suboxone and carrying on from the previous episode. So Fergal, we covered a lot of information in the last episode about both Suboxone and Buprenorphine, but to fully understand buprenorphine, I think we need to probably provide a bit of a description about what an agonist and an antagonist are. Could you break that down and explain what agonists and antagonists do to various receptors? Yeah, so we've also recently bandied around phrases like we've said that buprenorphine is a partial agonist. So, you know, what, what does that mean and what's the context of it? So an agonist is any drug which, when it binds to a receptor, has the potential to elicit that receptor's maximal response. A neutral antagonist has the ability, when it binds to the receptor, to block the effect of any other agonist from getting to that receptor, but in itself has no activity at that receptor. A partial agonist binds to the receptor but it does not have the ability to stimulate that receptor to maximal response, but it has the ability to stimulate the receptor to a sub-maximal response. Now, what that means in clinical practice is that at low doses, uh, partial agonists have basically a profile similar to full agonists in that as you increase the dose of the partial agonist, so too you increase the response, albeit that the, uh, this, the gradient of the log dose response curve is slightly shallower. However, at high doses or moderate to high doses, that's when you get a flattening of the curve, a flattening of that log dose response curve. And then you get to a point where at, there is no further clinical effect when you increase the dose. That's the ceiling effect. And that's a characteristic of all partial agonists. And we know that buprenorphine is a partial agonist and its ceiling effect is usually achieved at doses of 32 milligrams. Now to confuse the picture a bit more, we also have to understand what an inverse agonist is. So certain receptors have an intrinsic tone, an activity, a baseline activity. And an inverse agonist is able to actually bind to that receptor and switch off that inherent tone, that baseline activity. An antagonist, a neutral antagonist, does not have the ability to switch off the, the tone of a receptor, nor does it have the ability to stimulate that receptor. What it does is simply prevent either an inverse agonist or a full agonist or a partial agonist from actually binding to the receptor and having their effects. So, you know, what are the examples of inverse agonists? So we know that Chlorpromazine, uh, sorry, we know that uh, haloperidol is an inverse agonist, and we know that um, clozapine is an inverse agonist. We know that mirtazapine is an inverse agonist. So putting that into perspective, we know that buprenorphine is a partial agonist at mu. It has a ceiling effect at approximately 32 milligrams. At low to moderate doses, as you increase the dose, the clinical effect goes up, but at higher doses, you get to the ceiling effect and there's no further effect, certainly on respiratory depression. Now, just because it's a partial agonist does not mean it's actually a partial analgesic. The analgesic effect, is, it's a very good analgesic. But the that log, log dose response curve, it particularly applies to the risk of respiratory depression. 
That's a really great example, Fergal, talking about um, agonists, antagonists, and partial agonists. But there are some other terms that sometimes get thrown around with buprenorphine, and it does serve to sometimes muddy the water and can create confusion. And by that, I'm talking about affinity and avidity. Could you give us a bit of a definition about affinity and avidity and why it's so uh, important in the context of uh, talking about buprenorphine? Yeah, look, these terms are used almost interchangeably. And if you speak to pharmacologists, they will disagree with other, with kind of clinicians. I, however, I take the point that affinity is the strength of a non-covalent bond, whereas avidity is the sum total of all the positive and negative interactions between a receptor and a ligand. But, you know, really, if you use the word affinity, uh, to, to denote the strength of a bond between a receptor and a ligand, you know, so what? But so fundamentally, these terms identify the strength of binding between a receptor and a ligand. And it's important in the context of buprenorphine because we know that buprenorphine has a, has a high avidity for the, uh, the mu receptor and therefore is able to displace other opioids from that receptor. Now, what happens, Philippin, if we combine partial agonism with high avidity. So when you've got basically partial agonism with high avidity, you've got uh, a molecule or compound that will bind preferentially to the receptor and act on it and potentially displace any other full agonists from the receptor. And in a situation such as that, you can sometimes get a scenario or situation called precipitated withdrawal, which we have covered on a previous episode of cracking addiction, but it is a rapid withdrawal that has been precipitated by, in this case, buprenorphine, displacing a full agonist and causing a patient to go into a very quick and painful withdrawal phase. And it's one of the drawbacks of, uh, initiating therapy too quickly. Would you agree with that, Fergal? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we, if I, I think of the clinical effects of three key uh, pharmace- pharmacological properties of buprenorphine, the, the three key pharma- pharmacological properties are long half-life, partial agonism, high avidity. If you combine a long half-life with partial agonism, you get the potential for double or triple dosing. If you combine partial agonism with high avidity, you then get the potential for precipitated withdrawal. And when people speak to me about uh, precipitated withdrawal, I don't think they understand that that effect is dependent on two pharmacological effects of buprenorphine. Just because buprenorphine is a partial agonist does not mean in and of itself that it will cause precipitated withdrawal. It's only going to be a problem if it's a partial agonist and has high avidity and therefore is able to displace other full agonists from that receptor. So to understand precipitated withdrawal, you need to appreciate it's the product of two key properties of buprenorphine. Absolutely. And talking about precipitated withdrawal allows us to segue a tiny bit into when we would start someone on buprenorphine or suboxone. So say someone is using a opioid that is short acting such as uh, heroin or, or codeine or oxycodone 
practically when would you consider commencing them on Suboxone? Well, <laughs> the answer to this question is predicated on you've diagnosed opioid use disorder, first of all. Of course. Yeah. So the key thing is to understand that you cannot um, commence buprenorphine until they are already in withdrawal. Now, it's very tempting to prescribe a time. So you must wait eight hours from the last use or 24 hours from the last use. So eight hours from the last short acting use and 24 hours from the last long acting use. I don't really go on times anymore. I, I think it's more important to understand that the patient has got to demonstrate the signs of withdrawal before you initiate buprenorphine. Otherwise, you then precipitate a withdrawal, which could be worse than the withdrawal that they're already in. And that's actually a barrier to starting treatment of buprenorphine that you've actually got to put people into at least mild withdrawal before you can actually start the medication. Absolutely. But you've raised a very good point. We've talked about precipitated withdrawal. We definitely do not want to get our patients into precipitated withdrawal by starting Suboxone too early because it can lead to discontinuation of treatment. And we know when patients are not on opioid substitution therapy, their risk of morbidity and mortality increases. So it is vital that we ensure that a patient is in withdrawal before we, we start Suboxone. Now, Fergal, I think on a previous episode, we've talked about some of the side effects of, of buprenorphine. And you have a, a, an excellent acronym, uh, SHINK, I think, for the side effects of buprenorphine. Would you mind going through that again so we can explain to our patients what to expect when we've initiated them on Suboxone? Yeah, so shink is a, is a kind of a term meaning Sundays and holidays included. But it also means sweating, headache, insomnia, nausea, vomiting, constipation. And these are the side effects of buprenorphine that are, that are, I think are clinically relevant. But it doesn't all, one also has to understand that the, the, the other side effect that isn't mentioned in that mnemonic list is this feeling of being wired or activated because it's a partial agonist. Now, when it comes to dosing Suboxone, a lot of us do things slightly differently, but there is the underlying um, main rules with regards to initiating treatment and opioid substitution therapy, which is A, the diagnosis of opioid use disorder, B, obtaining a permit from your relevant state or federal authority. But how do you usually start the dose titration of Suboxone Fergal? So the product information states that you can start eight milligrams on day one. Um, I think that sometimes is a bit much. I'm a little bit more cautious. I like a two plus two approach. So two, two milligrams in the morning, and then if they're okay, four hours after that, then I'll give them another two milligrams. And that is, of course, predicated on the diagnosis of withdrawal. So they've got to have withdrawal first before they start the two milligram dose. So I go, you know, four milligrams day one, that's two plus two. I then go maybe eight milligrams day two, well, that could be eight milligrams in the morning or four plus four, and then 12 to 16 day three, and then thereafter. So usually most people are controlled on 16 milligrams. So you can get to 16 within three to four days, which is really quite rapid. And it's also a lot shorter time duration compared to the five half-lives that we talked about in a previous episode, which was the time to steady state. 
So because buprenorphine is a partial agonist, you can really rapidly escalate the dose without having to pay too much attention to the time it takes to get to steady state. And I guess a couple of other questions here about Suboxone. How do you know that a patient is on enough Suboxone? When do you determine what dose is the appropriate dose for the patient? Well, the key thing is when they tell you. you Um, I think it's appropriate for people to be on the dose of Suboxone that eases their cravings, their withdrawal symptoms, and uh, a, a dose that protects them from use on top. On the other side, that they're not over-sedated because, yes, even though we've been emphasizing the, the stimulating effect of buprenorphine, it's still an opioid. It still can cause some people sedation and when there, is, when there are no other side effects. So the sweet, stop, the sweet spot is enough control of the use disorder with minimal side effects. That's around 16 to 24 milligrams for most people in my experience. You can go higher and some people are controlled lower. But we know that, that you know, in terms of um, uh, plasma concentration studies, there is some evidence to suggest that a dose of four milligrams of buprenorphine per day produces about a 50% receptor occupancy, which uh, mu receptor occupancy, which is a, about enough to prevent withdrawal symptoms. And we know that buprenorphine at about 16 milligrams a day produces about 80% receptor occupancy and is enough to prevent craving. So we need a higher dose to prevent craving compared to the lower dose that just prevents withdrawal. So it's important to understand that just because someone's not in withdrawal doesn't mean they're not going to crave. And just because someone's not in withdrawal does not mean that they're on enough opioid replacement therapy. You need higher doses to prevent craving. And remember, addiction is a long-term chronic relapsing disorder associated with relapse. What drives relapse? Craving. So you need higher doses to prevent craving and therefore to prevent withdrawal than you do to prevent withdrawal itself. Another question around that, Mark. Do you find the dose of Suboxone is roughly similar to, say, uh, any prescription opioids the patient may have been taking? So say, for example, if someone was uh, misusing uh, panadine fort, so say hypothetically taking about 10 panadine fort per day, which I'm just going off the top of my head, might be an OMED around 40. Would you say, do you find the corresponding dose of uh, oral morphine equivalent for Suboxone would be what would hold the patient? Or do you find that there's no correlation at all between the doses that have been used for prescription opioids versus suboxone. So OMEDs are a very useful tool to work out dose equivalencies between opioids. And so OMED stands for oral morphine equivalent dose or could be equivalent daily dose. They They were developed primarily to help people with pain conditions. So, you know, if you were on a certain opioid for you know, if you're on morphine, 100 milligrams for chronic pain, then that would roughly be the equivalent of 60 milligrams of oxycodone. They were not designed to convert uh, previous doses of opioids to opioid substitution therapy. So, for instance, we know that the OMED value of buprenorphine is, is about is the ratio of multiplication is about 40. So we know that roughly 
one, uh, one milligram of uh, buprenorphine sublingual is equivalent to 40 milligrams of morphine. And so we can use that ratio to kind of work out the dose of buprenorphine or morphine that is needed to help convert one drug to the other in the context of pain. But we cannot use that conversion ratio to work out either the starting dose or the end dose of buprenorphine-based opioid substitution therapy. It's a completely different kettle of fish. The starting dose of buprenorphine is the same irrespective of any previous neuroadaptation. And the end dose of buprenorphine is unpredictable. So you can have people who are on, who, who do have codeine use disorder and albeit on quite small doses of codeine, but still they've got a use disorder and they actually need quite high doses of buprenorphine. And you can have someone who's on heroin use disorder, who's got heroin use disorder and they're perhaps only on moderate doses of buprenorphine. So the bottom line message is the degree of previous neuroadaptation does not influence the starting dose or the end dose and certainly does not predict the need for this dose, for any particular dose of opioid substitution therapy. And OMEDs cannot be used to determine any dose of opioid substitution therapy because both the starting dose of buprenorphine and the starting dose of methadone is the same irrespective of previous neuroadaptation. Excellent. Now, a few more practical questions, Fergal. What's your approach to missed doses of Suboxone? Yeah, it's, it's less critical than, than is the case with methadone, but the various uh, jurisdictions have different kinds of guidance. But basically, I go by the rule of thumb. If you've missed four complete days of buprenorphine, then you need to be retitrated. The, the, the key thing with that, however, is that if you've missed four doses, maybe four, five, six doses, well, what are you doing in the meantime? Are you taking full agonists? Because, you know, do you start a previous dose of buprenorphine or even a fraction of that previous dose, or do you have to retitrate? And in the case of buprenorphine titration, remember, you need to wait for withdrawal. So it's a judgment call, but I think more than four days, I think I would be tending to say to patients, we'll retitrate you, but you need to come back to me when you're in withdrawal. Was anything less than that, I'd say, oh, well, look, you know, here's your usual dose. Absolutely. And I think uh, one of the final things to talk about in, in the episode today is also about the use of buprenorphine in withdrawal management settings and to, to manage opioid withdrawal. How, do, how does Suboxone fit in in the list of tools we use to manage opioid withdrawal? So we've got to remember that opioid withdrawal is different from opioid addiction. So we know that withdrawal from opioids lasts basically a week. And it's purely a neuroadaptation, and you can, you can treat that within a week. Addiction, however, is a chronic relapsing disorder of the brain that can last for years. And it's characterized by craving, poor decision-making, and relapse. So those two conditions are separate. You can treat opioid withdrawal quite easily. You cannot treat opioid addiction easily. It's, 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 it's a chronic disease. But if we're looking at opioid withdrawal, we're looking at therapy designed to mitigate the symptoms of withdrawal symptoms during a, a, a sudden cessation or a rapid reduction of, of, of opioid use. Traditionally, we used a symptomatic relief uh, kind of regime where we would treat symptoms only. So that would include things like paracetamol for pain, 
boscopan for gut cramps, loperamide for diarrhea, metoclopramide for vomiting. And you might throw in a little bit of clonidine, which is an alpha-2 receptor agonist, to kind of reduce the, the agitation associated with withdrawal. And it would all be over in 7 to 10 days, and that would be a job done. Buprenorphine has been proven to be more effective and more tolerable for withdrawal management than purely symptomatic regimes. So we can, because it's got a, it's because it's got a partial agonist effect, we can rapidly titrate the dose. So you can go up to, you know, 12 milligrams within two to three days, and then you can leave it for 12, for a couple of days, and then you can rapidly decrease the dose again back down to zero within another three to four, even five days. So over the course of seven to 10 days, you can go up and go back down again on the dose of buprenorphine. And that is associated with a more, with a higher chance of a successful detox of opioids. It seems to be better tolerated by patients. I personally feel, however, that short, sharp detoxes don't really, aren't really associated with, with uh, good long-term outcomes. And I, I, I'm happy to do them for patients but I think they really act as a gateway to a detox regime and then followed by relapse, uh, you know, opioid substitution therapy. So patients may decide they only want to detox. You do that for them. And then if they relapse again, you can say, well, we did the detox. Let's actually just maintain you then on buprenorphine. Absolutely. And I think that covers the whole biopsychosocial aspect of addiction and the management of opioid use disorder. Um, Yet again, we've had a massive episode of Crack Me Addiction. We've covered agonists, antagonists, avidity, affinity, how to start someone on Suboxone, how to handle missed doses, and how to use Suboxone in a withdrawal management scheme. So thank you again, Virgil, for sharing your knowledge with us uh, on this episode. And to our listeners and viewers, bye for now.